Hello everyone, it's Dr. Sam. I'd like to welcome you to my iClarity podcast. This is a show that offers cutting edge information on how to improve your vision and overall wellness through holistic methods. I so appreciate you spending part of your day with me. If you have questions, you can send them to hello at drsamburn.com. Now to the latest iClarity episode. Well, good afternoon. It's so great to be back with you and I'm excited to share all this information. Also want to leave time for Q&A, make sure we've got uh, plenty of space to do that. So in our list here today, I want to go through several things and then we can elaborate if need be. So the first thing on the list is a quick review about how to read glasses prescriptions. And by the way, if anybody wants to say something in the chat, they can. I can also bring you on if, um, if you need clarification. So when you get a, a child and you're looking through their file and you get the prescription, there are some notations that you can look at that will at least give you an indication on what they have been prescribed. So in the nomenclature of the eye prescriptions, which is an FDA approved uh, document, the OD represents the right eye and the OS represents the left eye. And usually the OD is on top and the OS is on the bottom, usually in a, a prescription form. So the first thing that you want to look at is whether the first number has a plus sign or a minus sign in front of it. So a plus sign means that there's going to be a farsighted prescription. This is the magnification lens, a plus lens, or a minus lens, which is a negative lens, a nearsighted lens, a minus lens. And on a real basic level, a plus lens, usually a person has more difficulty seeing things up close. This is also a prescription that's used more for strabismus and amblyopia, generally speaking. And a nearsighted minus lens means that a person is having more struggles in the distance that they can see well up close. So whatever you're seeing, plus or minus, that's going to cue you the first number is going to be farsighted or nearsighted. So let's say for argument's sake, it's a a one. So this means that if it's a plus one, that means that the prescription is farsighted. We call that the sphere, SPH. And then if you look at the next a number over and you'll see above it CYL that's called cylinder that's the astigmatism part of the prescription and if an ophthalmologist is doing the examination he was going to write it in a plus cylinder plus astigmatism format 
If it's an optometrist, he or she is going to write it in a minus cylinder format. Now, at this point, it doesn't really matter because you're not going to be transposing prescriptions, meaning that you're converting them all to minus cylinder. But you'll know that if it's a plus cylinder, the ophthalmologist did the exam. And if it's a minus cylinder, the optometrist did the exam. And then you're going to look at the next number over, and that's going to be the amount of astigmatism in the prescription. Now, astigmatism means the eye is shaped more like an egg or a football. Also, perceptually, a person, when they look through an astigmatism lens, there's a warp. So there's an irregular blur that's going on. And then if we take it one step further, and I get a lot of interesting comments on my social media posts when I talk about craniosacral therapy unwinding the astigmatism in the eye because the astigmatism actually is sourced in the body as a twist. So this could go into a birth trauma coming out of the birth canal. It could be a problem with the spinal gallant reflex. And so astigmatism in the eye means that there's probably some twist or warp going on in the body. Could be a scoliosis, could be one leg longer than another, could be some kind of a, a head trauma. There's a lot of reasons why we develop astigmatism in the eye, but it has its roots in the body. This is why I don't correct for astigmatism in the eye, and I do craniosacral therapy and the astigmatism goes away in the eye. Whereas if you wear an astigmatism lens and you do craniosacral therapy, after the session, the twist is gone in the body, but as soon as you put the lenses on, the astigmatism comes right back. So it's a very interesting relationship between the astigmatism reading in the eye and the astigmatism reading in the body. And we can go into more depth if you've got questions about that. But for now, if you do see the cylinder and you see a number, usually it'll be something like a 0.5 or a 1 or a 1.5. And that will tell you how much warping this, this person is, is dealing with perceptually. It can be very confusing. Then the third reading on that row is there's an X and then there's a degrees from zero to 180. And that tells us the meridian that the warping or astigmatism is the worst. And so that's where they're correcting it. So as an example, if the axis is at 180, that would mean that the warping would be more severe in the horizontal, say the three nine meridian. If the astigmatism is more in the 90 meridian, then it would be more vertical. This would be more uh, in the up and down. This is where the astigmatism is most extreme. Now, I'm going to share something with you because of my thousands of people that I've tested with the primitive reflexes and astigmatism. And I don't share this very much except with people like yourself who 
have some background in. If I share it with the general mainstream, they have no idea what I'm talking about. But if you see Axis 180, there is an issue with eye movements horizontally, and it's related many times to a poor, poorly integrated asymmetrical tonic neck reflex. And if you do the asymmetrical tonic neck, re neck reflex program, that astigmatism in that horizontal meridian disappears, it dissolves. And the eye movements get much better in the horizontal meridian, so there's less visual tracking issues. In fact, I, I like to combine ATNR with visual tracking and maybe no astigmatism correction. So that's, that's one thing to note. Now, if the astigmatism in the vertical, there's a difficulty in the eye movement shifting from near to far, back to near. So I find that correlation with the symmetrical tonic neck reflex. I also find that in both cases, if I'm doing craniosacral and I release the neck, that the astigmatism releases also. So there's a lot of connections, a lot of dots here for you when you look at that astigmatism reading, which meridian is the, the one that's the problematic. Now, if it's anywhere besides the 180 or the 90, so it could be anywhere between say 10 degrees and 80 degrees or 95 degrees to 175 degrees that's kind of in the you know one o'clock two o'clock through five o'clock or it would be seven o'clock through eleven o'clock on a clock if the astigmatism is in those meridians then they have both the spinal gallant well i should say all three spinal gallant ATNR and STNR. So I'm really working with those quite a bit because the compensation is the child is having difficulty in those diagonal, diagonal meridians. So things like the Marsden ball where I'm swinging the ball diagonally and they're using a flashlight or I'm doing some vestibular stimulation. I'm working outside the horizontal vertical movements but I'm working in a more rotational situation, maybe the astronaut training or something like that, that again releases the astigmatism in the eye. So when you wear an astigmatism correction, it's reinforcing the twist and the reflexes being more reinforced. And I can't emphasize that enough. I've tried to talk to optometrists about this, but they don't know about the primitive reflexes and they're taught that if they see an imbalance in the refractive error, they give that, but they don't realize that they're reinforcing the imbalance. Of course, we know the difference with that. And because of the neuroplasticity in a child, especially, we can reduce and eliminate astigmatism quite well. And then we can also do some things with the farsightedness or the nearsightedness. So that's the OD, and right below that is the OS. So again, we're looking at that same configuration, the sphere, the cylinder, the axis, and uh, you're looking for the balance too. A lot of eye doctors want to correct one eye more than the other. Again, this is a mistake because you're reinforcing the asymmetrical pattern, which is why 
and I learned this from many of my holistic eye doctor mentor teachers who were mentoring me when we prescribe symmetrical lenses the eyes have the ability to go back into a more balanced symmetrical situation and we can see this when we do the Van Orden star and we're doing the pencil drawing and you can see how one eye is much closer and the other eye is farther away or, or whatever we see suppression in one of the eyes when you wear a prescription that reinforces that imbalance well good luck you are creating a hot a harder obstacle in releasing the refractive air and how that's going to echo in the body so i'm going to pause here and i want to take your questions you can come on screen if you want to uh, whatever you feel like you want to do you can also ask it in the chat whatever uh whatever works for you and if i don't hear from you then i'm going to move on to the next topic all good yeah i think so okay so let's move on to the second question that you had which is a review of the king devic any recommendations important analyses of information so one of the things that's happened in the evolution of the king devic test it's a test that measures ocular motor skill. Now what's happened over the last several years, and this is very interesting, that the King Devic is used for people who have had traumatic brain injury, birth trauma, closed head trauma, sports concussions. And what the researchers found is that when we have any kind of a head trauma, that it's going to affect our ocular motor control. And we know this when we do our de detailed history and we're asking about, you know, what kind of birth was this? Breach, you know, forceps delivery, C-section, on and on that in my opinion is a birth trauma and then when i fast forward to when i start doing this test at the school age i am most of the time correlating the ocular motor deficiency way back to that trauma so when you're doing this test children can get kind of agitated when there's a timing uh pressure on them which is what this test is involved and when we start off in the booklet there's a practice that we do i usually do a practice with them and then we start with each page and they have to call out the the number and they're they're moving across the the page and i'm i'm not only counting the mistakes but i'm really tuned in to their behavioral mannerisms. You know, a long time ago, when I was consulting with some of the public schools in Philadelphia, it's where my first practice was, and I gave a seminar to a group of school nurses because they were really frustrated that they were making the wrong referrals 
to the eye doctors. They were basing the referral on a distance acuity reading. And I said, there's three things here. Number one, give the child a near point card and watch how they read it. And those behaviors are going to immediately tell you that there's going to be a vision problem. And we, we know, you know, in your screenings that you've written up, skipping words, losing the place, covering an eye, you know, pulling it, pulling the material closer than the Harmon distance, you know, scrunching up the face, whatever, whatever they're doing, you know immediately that there's a vision problem. And the school nurses, it was an epiphany for them. They started to get 100 out of 100 when they would refer because they were using the near point test and they were asking the children to read. Now, this was before I gave them the King Devic test, but you are going to get so much information observationally. Do they want to use their finger? How are they holding their body as they read it? You know, you, you know all these things. What are they doing with their head position? You know, it's really fascinating when I started to study the primitive reflexes that we would, in, in my primitive reflex training, we were taught to observe how a child reads a book and we could pinpoint which primitive reflexes were not integrated. We also did this by having them hit the Marsden ball and just how they would walk and run and those kinds of things. So the point of the story is, is that it's not only the objective test score that you're going to get, but you're also going to get the, the subjective behavioral characteristics and to note if there's a history of trauma, and it could be any trauma, could be emotional trauma, could be psychological trauma, physical trauma, that that is playing into the ocular motor skill set and in many of the kids over the years that I have evaluated at Kid Power, one of the common complaints is the tracking is not getting better or the tracking is not, you know, integrating. And I think this trauma piece, and I, I know that you know about the polyvagal theory and the, the evolution of the nervous system and what's involved in that trauma response that to continually working alongside the trauma piece, alongside the ocular motor piece, maybe with the primitive reflexes, is maybe gives you a little more insight if a child is falling apart when you're testing the King Devic. But otherwise, it's a pretty self-explanatory test. You just follow the directions, you score the test, it's a good one to do for parents or other therapists so that they can see the before and after. And I've had many fathers say to me, wow, this is a big difference in the scoring after they've done, say, three months of vision therapy. So again, I'm going to pause and see if you've got any questions or comments about the King Devic. Otherwise, I'm going to move on to the next thing. Okay, well, I guess things are going well for you. So let's move on. Uh, the, the, next, the next item on your list 
All the ways and treatment ideas I recommend for getting in, into the Moro fear paralysis and the tendon guard reflexes or any others that I would like to cover. Uh, one of the spotlights is uh, the observing of the moral reflex coming out during the movement activities or in the responses of kids. Also talk about the toes turning in, the toes turning out, and the walking patterns, what we use in the line assessment, especially when we're using the prisms as a, as a tool to see where the child is motoring. Okay, well, I'll, I'll go through the list as best I can. This is a, a very deep subject. So, you know, I think with the moral reflex and many of these things you already know because you've studied a couple of different uh, people who are really great at, at doing the, at, at teaching the reflexes. But one of the things I really look at in all three, the Moro, the fear paralysis, and the tendon guard reflexes is the breathing. And there are things that I'm looking at in the breathing as follows. Number one, I'm looking at where, if any, is the movement in their respiratory thoracic area diaphragm my experience is is that when i have a child with the moro fear paralysis and tendon their breathing and i'm standing up here is right here in this very small area i also notice that there's a lot of mouth breathing and one of the sayings that I use is the nose is for breathing and the mouth is for eating. And when we do a lot of mouth breathing, we, we get into that fight, flight, freeze response that Stephen Porges talks about in the polyvagal theory. And in our continual movement community, uh, Porges is, you know, one of the key players in that somatic therapy that you've seen me do, that the breath tells me everything. It's like the scroll of history of how that child landed at birth. You know, when we want to say that birth is an emergence, but birth has actually become an emergency in a lot of cases. And that particular imprint right there is the place that really marks the breathing and this is what then triggers the lockdown of the fear paralysis moro and tendon guard so i'm looking at the breath i'm looking at the the quality of the inhale and the exhale a lot of kids are in this <gasps> okay and so when you're in that <gasps> and I'm, I'm dramatizing it for sure, but I'm holding my breath. I, I can't exhale, okay? I'm always in inhale. And then you got the kids that are always in the exhale and they can't inhale. So you're looking at that broad range of inhalation and exhalation. 
Inhalation is our birth. Exhalation is our death. The death, birth, death, birth. Every breath we're doing, inhale, exhale. We dissolve on the exhale. We resolve on the inhale. And it's why you've seen me uh, sometimes help kids by doing a humming sound or some other sounds that I have them make. And if you do start making some sound, these specific sounds like a humming sound or a puffed O or an E sound, what happens is indirectly the, the breathing gets longer, deeper, more diaphragmatic, and it's something that I will do sounding while we're doing, say, some of the reflex integration stuff. And another way you could do this would be to put them on the beamer for a few minutes before you do the reflex. Maybe do a little craniosacral while they're on the beamer. So you're really spreading their tissue. You're slowing them down. You're getting them into their body. And then you're going to notice the breath is better. Another place I see the lockdown is in the neck area as well. We know that with, you know, I just can just touch a child's neck and I know all three of these are, you know, really locked in. And I am very sensitive about triggering or re-stimulating traumas in kids. I, I really, um, I'm very dedicated and committed to that knowing my own sensitivity that sometimes I don't need to test these reflexes. I just know they have them and by testing them is going to re-stimulate the, the trauma, which I don't want to do. In any event, uh, um, that's what I'm really looking at, the breathing. So one of the ways, very simply, you don't have to know all the sounds or something, is the palm hum. Having them put their hands over their eyes and just breathing in through the nose and on the exhale. And you do it with them. I do this a lot with kids. I had a, a child the other day from Kid Power and very traumatized. There was a lot of um, thunder outside. And so we both lie down, all three of us and mom too. And we did the palm hum for a few minutes and then we started to work and we started to do some reflex integration things. And she was much more centered and receptive after her system dropped in, dropped into herself. So the sound is one of the best ways to penetrate compressed tissue. And it's indirectly going to help the breathing. And at the same time, it's going to allow you to help them integrate these early imprints that most likely either were from the birth imprint or the gestation imprint. And I ask a lot of questions about gestation. What was going on with mom and dad and the grandparents and the siblings? And if there was a miscarriage right before that, all of these things, the fetus feels 100x. We know this, right? And so all of these imprints are absorbed and these are the kids that we're, you know, we're helping navigate and land them so that they can realize that birth is an emergence and not what the allopathic medical community says, which is it's an emergency. 
and that's what it's become and it's we're trying to land these kids and part of it is getting them to integrate the reflexes so in terms of the movements when i have them walking and you see this when i come and i evaluate i'm having them walk a line and i'm going to see proprioceptively how much control they have of their arms and their legs it tells me where they where they are in space proprioception is a great indicator of where are my arms where are my legs and where are my feet how am i dealing with gravity in a vertical orientation and so we get to see in the walking uh, with the feet are they heel to toe are they uh, just toe strikers or they heel start strikers are and that tells me if if not much of their feet are really grounding in that they're pulling away from the earth and that also says they've pulled away from coming out of the birth canal it's like whoa i'm supposed to come out have i been induced where's mom where's you know i'm not feeling her she's on pitocin or whatever all of those things affect their grounding ability and i'm also looking at the symmetry because whatever the feet are doing the eyes are doing if the feet are going out probably the eyes are more in an exophoria divergence uh, place or if their feet are turning in there or one of their feet is turning in that's more of a convergence situation or it could be a strabismus situation and then when we use the prisms this is great because the prisms are shifting their midline left right up or down and it's going to give you a preference on where to plug in based on their stability sometimes we want to challenge them and let's say they are not grounded in we would give them the base up prisms and that's going to bring them down and in although they might feel disoriented with that or as an, another example if you're looking at the van orden stars and they're all right eye and the left eye is diffused in its focusing we might give them a base right prism to move them more into their left eye and you'll see this whole situation play out when they're walking now the other thing about this is going backwards the back space the back breathing is so important because the way we come in is we're thrusting forward and our whole awareness is this way screen time tv everything that we're doing is thrusting forward and in my in my clinical experience when i help kids learn about backspace and they get that 360 in their vision their peripheral vision opens up they ground in their vestibular system begins to integrate with the visual system their visual memory gets better so that's why the motoring backwards is so important and again you've got the prisms where you can work with these kids forwards backwards and then in a more advanced setting things like the marsden ball or the beanbag catch or the juggling or even doing a little bit of vestibular 
stimulation with the with the yoke prisms on all of these things again are going to help you in the integration of the reflexes you know yesterday i had an ot who came to see me and she was really freaked out about her vertigo which she's had for many many years and so i said look i can help you with this and i had her lie down on her back and i gave her the prisms and i had her move a little bit and at first she went into that fight flight freeze fear paralysis vertigo and she had a memory that when she came out of the birth canal she got stuck and the doctor was trying to do all kinds of things to get her out he finally pulled her out and she was so disoriented from it it just here she's a 55 year old woman an ot yet and i said go into the vertigo and she did and boom her peripheral vision opened up and she's like i'm free now i've always had this fear around the vertigo and now i've traced it back to the birth and we we also traced it to the fear paralysis reflex so anyways the, all these connections are taking place and it's for you to work in your own evolutionary way about discovery and that we can have discussions about this so that you can start to connect the dots and it'll get you and your child to the finish line much more quickly all right <laughs> that was a mouthful i'm going to pause are there any comments questions No, brain overload, Dr. Byrne. <laughs> brain overload, okay. Well, sorry about that, but I only have you for an hour, so, um, and I think you can handle it, so. <laughs> <laughs> we can handle it. I know. Okay, so uh, the next thing on your list, um, peripheral vision how peripheral vision difficulties manifest in functional clinical observations we might see and favorite treatment activities to address peripheral vision deficits okay i'm going to say it this way in the eyeball we have a vast real estate which we call the retina the back of the eye and there is a very tiny part of the retina called the macula. The macula makes up less than 1% of the real estate of the retina. Now the function of the macula is to see detail and have color vision. And if we rewind hundreds of years ago and we look at our ancestors, our ancestors, because they didn't have any screens or digital devices, it was before the Industrial Revolution, our ancestors processed things in a much more global way. And so the macula was not getting overloaded. But once we hit the Industrial Revolution, so we were dealing with robotic, repetitive, very, you know, mental 
things. This is what the culture, how we were moving in that direction. And then technology came on the scene. And of course, today we can't live without our screens and our devices. We have become very macula centric. Another way to say that is we tunnel. Now, the downside of tunneling is that the 99% of our retinas that are involved in peripheral vision are not getting activated. Now, one of the detriments of that is that when we don't activate our peripheral vision, our vestibular system also is not activated. So another way to say that is when we become very tunneled and over-focalized, we lose touch of our vestibular functioning. And that's why more and more people are suffering things like nausea, dizziness, disorientation, vertigo, because if they glimpse up and out at something beyond this very narrow band, they're going to get very disoriented. And yet one of the principles in vision therapy that I love to use is to disorient people so that they have to find the resource to reorient themselves. Disorientation, reorientation. Disorientation, reorientation. That builds so much neurological intelligence and neurological health to do that. Now, as a therapist, the art of it is going, well, I don't want to push this person over the edge to the point where, you know, they can't reorient themselves. But whether you're using an eye patch or using the prisms or doing color therapy, you know, just as some examples, those are ways that you could be disorienting. You're, you're adding a new stimulus. And whenever you add a new stimulus, the brain goes, I got to remap myself. And in the research that I've seen about neuroplasticity, especially in kids, they have so many mapping potential opportunities that we don't have. You know, after the age of 28, it becomes a little harder to access neuroplasticity. We still can, but there's some other things we need to do to prepare ourselves to access that plasticity. But in kids, you see it all the time. And so to know, okay, where are they in their nervous system? Maybe they need to go into the silent room for a few minutes with their headphones, or maybe they need to do the beamer at the beginning of the session or some color therapy or something, maybe some blocks. Many times I'll start a session and we'll just do some parquetry blocks because kids like that, that's the hands-on. But in any event, the goal is to get them out into their peripheral vision because peripheral vision helps us with our depth perception so when they look at the clown, the three-dimensional picture with the Polaroid glasses, one of the things that happens if they're not getting any 3D, 
you could get him to stand up and do a little bit of long swings or get him to do some kind of a physio, a physio ball or some kind of vestibular stimulation so the vestibular can help trigger and improve the peripheral vision and the peripheral vision can help stimulate and trigger the, the vestibular system. So it goes both ways. It's good to know that. And let's say you have a child where you're, you know that their, their peripheral is not there. Another way to see that is in the Van Orden stars. Lots of kids you've seen in the drawings, all of the lines are down or all of the lines are off to the one side or to the other side. So what that tells you is they have very little up space, very little peripheral up here. And the idea is that by doing the movement things you do, the vestibular things you do, you are accessing their peripheral vision. And now you've got the tools where you can test things using the polarized pictures. Um, that, that is a great way, or the Van Orden stars. You can see binocularly, are they showing up simultaneously and is there a peripheral engagement? The other tool that's really awesome for developing peripheral vision is the base down prisms, the base down yoke prisms. Those are the prisms that when you put them on, it raises the horizon line up and out at an angle. What a gift when the child is down and in and inward eyes. That, that is a stress trauma response. I've got to protect myself. I've got to pull in. You may even see it more dramatically in cross-eyed strabismus. If one of the eyes is crossing, they're turning away from life on that side. And so encouraging them to say, what's over here? You know, things like flashlight tag and the scarves and the bean bags and getting them into that open space. And there's the triangle that I talk about. The vision, the vestibular, and the third part of the triangle is the proprioception. And so when you bring in proprioception, when somatically they feel their body, that is another way automatically their vestibular comes out. So if I was drawing arrows back and forth, proprioception can stimulate periphery, periphery can stimulate proprioception. Proprioception can stimulate vestibular, vestibular can st stimulate proprioception. Vestibular can stimulate vision and vision can stimulate vestibular. So you've got the formula wherever you want to plug into or where you feel there's an opening in the child so that they can um, begin to develop that peripheral awareness in a way that is going to help them with their memory, their balance, and their uh, depth perception. And so many kids that I see, what's happening with them is they're not binocular. And if they're right-handed, a lot of times their left eye is suppressing. You can see it in the Worth 4 dot. You can see it in the Keystone Visual Skills. You can see it um, in the Vectogram. So you've got a couple of different ways. 
And part of the suppression is they're, they're not able to activate their peripheral vision. And so your job some way is to see if you can get them visually and vestibularly more out here. Now it's a safety issue sometimes. So they have to feel safe and they have to feel stable and they have to know that, you know, they're not going to get completely overwhelmed. That's why we shut it down because we, we can't handle all that periphery. And this is what starts, for example, myopia, nearsightedness. We start filtering, pulling in or farsightedness. We push it away or astigmatism. We twist it. So I think that what I've observed when I've watched you is that you are doing a lot of peripheral awareness. And, you know, if you had to pin me down, what's my favorite activity probably would be juggling uh, or it would be doing some kind of a balance uh, exercise. So those, those would be some things that I would do and then maybe start engaging a visual you know, visual experience with that, either with the prisms, something soft and easy. And of course, you can use the learning lenses. That's another way to get them into a little more periphery. Um, and using the eye patch equally on each eye, as long as it's not overwhelming them, is another way that when you take the patch off, you get a rush of light that comes in on that side. That's a lot more peripheral vision than before you did the patch. And the brain, again, has that plasticity that you're creating a, a, a new mapping immediately. And that's the great thing about these kids. And you see it. They're flowering. They're growing. They're evolving. And I don't measure them in what necessarily society says, okay, you have to be doing this at this age. They're at their own unique rhythm. Thank you for listening. I hope you learned something from the iClarity podcast show today. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave a review. See you here next time.